Will supply chains ever learn the need for real risk management? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Despite all the natural and unnatural disasters that have clobbered supply chains in recent years, many companies continue to rely on just a handful, sometimes just one, of sources of supply for critical materials like microprocessors, neon, lithium, coolant, nickel, palladium, the list goes on. And when those producers shut down without warning, disaster can result. On this episode, we look at the potential for supply chain disruption due to limited sourcing strategies and what companies can do about it with the help of Bindia Vakil, Chief Executive Officer of Resilink. The answer, it turns out, isn't always the obvious one, in part because supplier diversification isn't necessarily an option for many manufacturing supply chains. So what to do instead? And how can companies incorporate new requirements for complying with environmental, social, and governance mandates into their risk management strategies? Here's my conversation with Bindia Bakil. Bindia Bakil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Bob. Despite all these warnings and of various natural disasters and a whole bunch of other supply chain disruptions, we know that global supply chains have remained dependent on just a few sources of supply for some critical raw materials, such as microprocessors and even coolant, neon, lithium, rare earth materials, and so much more. My question to you is, why have they allowed themselves to get into this situation despite a steady series of warning signs over the years? You're absolutely right, Bob. There have been a steady series of warnings. I mean, I'll tell you, I started my career in supply chain in 2000 with the tantalum capacitor shortage, which basically caused the dot-com crash. And it if you recall, tantalum capacitor costs no more than 0.002 cents. But here was this little part that went into just about every high-tech industry product that you can think of. And it ended up being, this was 2000, 2001. The lead time to get that part was 12 months. It was companies placing lots of orders, backlogs were high, people were celebrating, and then bam, the demand got wiped out. And then as I've been in supply chain since then, the last 22 years have seen many warnings. We've seen the 2006 Taiwan earthquake where the undersea cable was severed. We saw the Hurricane Katrina disruption, the massive tsunami in Asia of 2005, and then, of course, the 2011 tsunami, the bankruptcies of 2008, the Iceland volcano, you get the picture, right? Um, <laughs> it just yeah. has been one thing after another. You know, but the thing was that supply chain struggles during these times, and they were certainly those warning signals that the people who were paying attention said, wow, we did not do well. We did not find out about this issue. We did not know how many of our suppliers were in the affected area. Never will I ever let that happen to me again. And they put Mm -hmm. in place some capabilities to map the supply chain and do 
Whereas a lot of other people moved on and they said, oh, that was a once in a lifetime thing. How many times will we have a 50-year flood in Thailand? But mm-hmm. the thing that we forgot was that we have a supply chain that spans the globe. And so we're not just dealing with a 50-year flood in Thailand. We're dealing to this year, we're dealing with a 50-year flood in Thailand. Next year, we're dealing with a 100-year tsunami in Japan. And then we're dealing with the 75-year pandemic. And that, But it's cycling faster and faster. And because our supply chains are so interconnected and so complex and so global, we are more and more vulnerable to these events. I think we as humans have a really poor risk understanding. (laughs) And so I think we kind of move on, think we got lucky, this is not going to happen again, and let's go on to business as usual. And that's what we are paying for. Certainly short memories. It's fascinating. I had never heard the shortage of tantalum capacitors as being the cause behind the dot-com crash of 2000. Tantalum, of course, being one of the major things that are mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. Was that part of the reason for that shortage? Multiple reasons, but certainly the availability of tantalum was one of the key gating factors why the capacitor became a shortage part. And it's Mm -hmm. been 20 years, so I don't have all of the recollection. But what really struck me, right, and this is the key that I walked away with, was that a part that was 0.002 cents. And yeah. Nitan being 12 months, this is what happened. You had all these companies, they were wanting a thousand units from their contract manufacturer. I worked at an electronics contract manufacturer. So instead of, at, if I wanted a thousand pieces, I would actually tell everyone I need 2,000. You know the bullwhip effect, right? So me, yep. I take all my demand, I aggregate it, I add some buffer. I'm telling my supplier I want 2,500. <laughs> and so the <laughs> signal goes. And so everyone in the industry was celebrating. The talk at parties was, we have so much backlog. And you're hearing that today. You're hearing that, and this is alarming, because a lot of this demand ends up not being real demand. It's just demand that people are increasing artificially so that instead of the rationed amount of quantity that they would be allocated, they get what they actually need, which is a yeah. thousand pieces. <laughs> not a good way to work. Ghost demand, I guess you could probably call it. It's yeah. interesting. In the wake of all of these various natural disasters or various types of disasters in the last few years, I have found myself talking to many risk managers and many companies says, oh, yeah, because of that now, we have an action plan for the next time. We have a war room that we're going to set up. We have a big book we're going to take down from the shelf and open it up and know who's everyone's responsibilities in order to react to this problem. But none of them actually proactively then turned around to diversify their sourcing. So my question is, why do we have to go to Ukraine for 90% of our neon? And Taiwan, for all the microprocessors, companies didn't have the foresight, or maybe it just wasn't possible. Why didn't they diversify? Yeah, it's a great question. What happens is when we started to globalize 25, 30 years ago, we sort of created the situation where each region or country or company even develops core competence in something. And they develop perfection in the manufacturing or the talent pool availability in a region or whatever the dependencies might be. All the suppliers began to go source 
uh, or co-locate with other suppliers. And next thing you know, we began to get these geographic concentrations. We see this right now in Taiwan. We see this in Ukraine for neon. Now we have a coolant factory in Belgium that we realize supplies 80% of the coolant necessary in the semiconductor manufacturing process. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and just look at us right now in this moment, we have an opportunity to really diversify our semiconductor manufacturing and we have co-located sites in Arizona and Texas, two regions, by the way, that are in drought regions of the world where we have very little water. And wafer fabs that we're setting up in, the, uh, in Texas and Arizona require 9 million gallons of water a day. It seems that a lot of these companies are making risk assessments based on, well, as you say, that won't happen again. Plus, just the cost of diversification and the headaches involved in it. In general, have you seen companies taking more of a risk-oriented philosophy, a risk-oriented mindset to balance against the pure cost considerations? Or are they still in a cost mode and just hoping and praying that they're not going to need another source because of some future disaster? We are definitely seeing a shift as we speak. It is happening at a far more accelerated pace than we have ever seen in the past. That is a good news, Bob. Hmm. Unfortunately, we still have a lot of people sort of putting band-aids on the problem or still whack-a-mole, right? As you said, reactive. A lot of people are setting up reactive capabilities like, I will know whenever something happens right away. Certainly, that is important. Early detection is incredibly important. But early detection means you're, just so you know, I mean, we had 1,900 factory fires last year, just last year across the 20 industries or so that we monitor. The problem is that not every company gets equally affected by all these things that happen literally on a daily basis around the world. So the second part of the information that you really need that is really key to being more proactive is to map the supply chain. You need to know not only what has happened, but right away be able to say, does this affect me, any of my direct or second or third tier suppliers? And unless you can map, unless you have mapped your supply chain, you can't answer that second question. And so those are the two, two key capabilities that support a robust, fast detection, early response and reactive recovery process. But on the proactive side, having that supply chain map available means you can now spot that, hey, I have a geographic concentration becoming a problem in this country or that region or this city or that company. Or mm -hmm. 10 of my direct suppliers seem to all be buying this material from that one source. I'm just a little bit gobsmacked, I guess, when you talk about the need to map. The implication, of course, being that a lot of companies don't have maps of their supply chains. In other words, do not have an intimate knowledge of where and from whom they're sourcing product. They've just let that slide over the years. A lot of supply chain organizations rely on people. And that is fine because supplier relationships are very important. You can't have technology building relationships. The problem is that people are siloed, right? Each of us knows what we know and our heads are not connected. So that <laughs> means we slow down our reaction time. And so we need to supplement our people and our hiring with technology that is in the cloud where a certain portion of our knowledge data base gets 
aggregated in a central place that is now accessible to everybody who is a stakeholder in this. That's the fundamental problem with how we have run our supply chain in the past. And that is the biggest problem that I see companies have not really addressed even going forward. A lot of people are asking for more headcount. Hey, we have all these disruptions. I need five extra people. No, what Mm -hmm. you need is technology in the cloud that takes all this collective knowledge and makes it accessible to all the people you have today so that you can speed up decision making. You are all working from a single source of truth and you can make decisions without having to have 20 phone calls. The awareness of this issue that you're talking about, is it happening in the C-suite? Is it at the CEO level? I mean, obviously we can think of supply chain officers, even chief supply chain officers, as being acutely aware of the need for the type of thing you're talking about here. But what about the actual CEOs? What about the boards of directors? What about investors? Are they fully aware of the need for the type of capabilities that you're proposing here? Unfortunately, the answer is a resounding no. And there are multiple reasons for that. Number one, the CEOs for the last many years have made supply chains report into their head of finance or the CFO, or it's been sidelined, right? So, hey, you go get me your cost savings and reduce inventory, and then I'm leaving you alone. Stay out of my way, right? But Mm -hmm. now we are learning that as CEOs, role and responsibility, which is to get the like, hey, if my company can grow 60%, that's the opportunity in front. But if my supply chain is not keeping up with that, I am not able to meet my growth target. And that means supply chain is very much needing a seat at the table, the eye of the CEO. And it is not just some cost saving function for your organization. It's a very strategic growth oriented function for your organization. And I think that realization is the first that needs to be addressed. And the second is that even for supply chain leaders, we are defaulting to, oh, I'm going to diversify all my sources or I'm going to have every supplier have a backup site. Mm -hmm. And I think those are kind of extreme positions as well. Or I'm going to go from just in time to just in case. And these are extreme positions. These are unrealistic. They're going to add so much incremental cost that you're not going to be able to get the business justification to make those massive investments, build warehouses and stuff them with inventory. This is not long-term feasible. And so what we need is to really come together and say, we need to not ditch lean NGIT. We need to supplement lean NGIT with a mapping and monitoring program that is grounded in data that allows me to detect and respond quickly and proactively have a plan for and playbooks for single points of failure. And as long as I have that, we can be lean and resilient and competitive at the same time. So if I say the answer is supplier diversification, you're saying that's too simplistic and, and in many cases extreme and not as easy to carry out as one might say, right? I would say that, yes, because, and there are multiple reasons, right? When we say supplier diversification, the answer is different for every company. Are you a commoditized product? Uh, Where are your markets? Um, What are your margins? How much volume? Some companies simply don't buy enough to justify two factories. There's just, factory means hundreds of millions in fixed costs that somehow need to be amortized. That might not even be an option for certain industries or some companies. The other part is when you have two sources, 
Now what you've done is you've actually created an environment of distrust with your supplier. And this is actually a huge problem from a resilience standpoint. Unless you have a supplier that has a financial issue, right, meaning their financial health is at risk, you're okay to have the same supplier have multiple factories for you. That is a perfectly good strategy. So in multiple geographies. And also now, the, yeah, in different geographies, because now yeah. what you've told the supplier is you're my strategic partner. I am betting my future on you, and I need you to be transparent, trustworthy, and reliable, and we will both win together. And this is mm-hmm. the most powerful transformation in risk if you and procurement because in the procurement mindset, we treat our suppliers very poorly. But yeah. if any one of our suppliers fails, we fail. And so the opposite of that is if a supplier succeeds, it is continuity of supply to me. It is revenue assurance for supplier. So managing risk becomes a win-win for both. And I think this is the, if we approach this relationship with that sense of partnership, trust, transparency, collaboration, and award our most transparent suppliers the most business, select them in our next platform. And I mean, mm-hmm. that becomes a partnership that for the long term. So in case of disruption, the so-called B supplier could be the same supplier, just in a different place. Yes. If, and, if, and the, if the disruption fact, is geographic in nature. Yes, it could be the same supplier with a healthy financial profile who is now supporting you in multiple geographies, but you have a tighter relationship, meaning now this is a supplier where you know where their factories are, who they do do business with, who they're buying critical raw materials from, meaning there's trust and transparency. The supplier trusts you with their information and you you reward the supplier's trust by giving them more business. Okay, so as if all this were not complex enough, now and very recently, we're hearing more and more about ESG, environmental, social, and governance. This becomes a huge consideration in supplier choice, supplier maintenance, supplier monitoring. How do you factor that into the risk picture? Frankly, ESG is long overdue because, you know, supplier chains have been a force for good. I mean, if you look at China 30 years ago versus China today, it was supply chains that pulled Chinese people out, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, right? It Mm -hmm. was the force for good. But having said that, we did that at the cost of environment. Yes, we created a lot of jobs. But these jobs were exploiting people and violating environment. And now with ESG, the planet is rebelling against that. Half the planet have factories in drought areas. The other half, factories are getting flooded. So we need to really look at what it is that we're doing and build our supply chains with these ESG guidelines in mind because it is necessary for our long-term success. And supply chains being that force for good, we can create good, clean, legal jobs in these countries and elevate the people there instead of violating environment, exploiting labor, not paying people, exploiting Mm -hmm. their desperation and poverty. So in the end, finally, how can companies actually incorporate risk management into planning and sourcing? Do they need a chief risk officer? Do the procurement people need themselves to be risk experts? I know the tools you're talking about can help, but how do you build into the organization the risk management mindset that allows you to handle any potential problem that comes down the line? The foundation is data, because when you don't have data, 
risk is a insurmountable problem. So when risk is a data problem, now you have data, it's a people problem. You have to change people's mindset, change people's behavior using this in new insight and this new intelligence to make more resilient or risk-adjusted choices. And so that's what you have to do. There's a transformation that needs to happen. Like I said, make your CSCOs report to the CEOs. Incentives need to be aligned so that the CSCO or the chief procurement officer is not just a cost center, but there's an incentive to protect the supply chain with resilience in mind. Otherwise, we revert back to that old behavior. Supplier incentives have to change so that transparency is rewarded and not punished. This is a transformation that will take a decade, unfortunately. These are ingrained behaviors and it does not change overnight. But the need to change is yesterday. We needed to make (laughs) these changes yesterday. Bindia Vakil, it's so great to speak with you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for talking about this extremely important issue of sourcing and risk and indeed challenging some of my assumptions about the issue as well. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. That was my conversation with Bindia Vakil of Resilink talking about the need for true supply chain resilience and risk management. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.